Right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, just one word before we start um, to explain um, roughly the edges of my lecture tonight, uh, what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Um, you all have these sheets, as it were, and I will be referring to these and, in fact, reading one or two passages from them. But I will by no means be dealing with all the passages. In fact, uh, probably only about a third of them. But I, th I, th I got this handout together, um, and as you will see, I've broken it down into over uh, into general uh, um, to a general section on some Jungian positions and standpoints, and then divided it up into more specific areas: Jung and German Romanticism, for instance; Jung and Nicholas Cusanus, Paracelsus, Alchemy, and so on and so forth. And the whole point of this really is that although I will be using it, um, it is something that you can take away with you and mull over afterwards. Um, because the area that I'm going to attempt to make some uh, um, sense of, as it were, is extremely complicated and much too large to put into one lecture. I will be referring outside the sheets, but also inside the sheets. Uh, should you have any questions, or in the case of leafing through them, please do not hesitate to ask me afterwards. <coughs> right. Um, in my talk this evening, then, I want to show uh, how many of Jung's basic ideas in the field of psychology, his fundamental view of the psyche, its structure as well as its, as, as its functioning, indeed his whole theory of perception, are rooted in ways of thinking and seeing that are specifically German, and which to a large extent account for the considerable richness, cultured breadth, and depth of what he has to tell us. In other words, it's a way of understanding Jung which is, I think, insufficiently realized. And although I'm not in the least suggesting that this is the only way to approach Jung's life and work, these being amenable, of course, to many forms of access, it does seem to me to make good sense to situate these in the culture that gave them birth. I've called this culture the German tradition because I wish to isolate an inherited mode of thought, as I see it, a stance towards reality, a Weltanschauung, if you like, and the term will be seen to be symptomatic, which characterizes this tradition and is at the same time, I believe, essentially Jungian. This is not to say, of course, that there are not several exceptions to and many variations within this tradition. Since we are talking about a highly complex culture, um, and um, such would be the case with any modern European country. But for the purposes of my talk, and indeed because I believe that the overall argument really holds, I shall try to separate out and describe as clearly as I can the mode of thought and approach to reality marking the tradition and Jung's appropriation of it. This can be categorized to begin with as a conviction that it is the mind or psyche that both essentially and practically creates our world for us that it is the mind or psyche through which so-called outside reality is communicated and filtered to us, so that what we actually experience is nothing other, as Jung says, than, quote, psychic images. There is no simple direct transference of outside reality such as that espoused, for instance, by Locke and British empiricism. 
uh, whereby a naive realism implies not only the obvious actuality of outside objects, a spade is a spade, and somebody mentioned in discussion, I think a few weeks ago, we were talking about Dr. Johnson's uh, attempt to refute Barclay. I refute him thus and kicks the stone. Well, philosophically, that's not a, that's not a starter. Um, anyway, um, there's no... Uh, uh, um, uh, um, um, but also what this tradition does, the, the empiricist tradition now, um, you get a, um, a dominant tune are my immediate experience. For they alone are the immediate objects of my consciousness. My own psyche even transforms and falsifies reality, and it does this to such a degree that I must resort to artificial means to determine what things are like apart from myself. Then I discover that a tone is a vibration of the air of such and such a frequency, or that a color is a wavelength of light of such and such a length. We are all in truth so enclosed by psychic images that we cannot penetrate to the essence of things external to ourselves. Now Jung is pointing out here from inside the field of his own discipline that all experience is psychic and that outside objects inevitably are translated into psychic images so that it is the latter which we are conscious of, not the objects. I discover that a tone is a vibration of the air of such and such a frequency, or that a color is a wavelength of light of such and such a length. We are all, in truth, so enclosed by psychic images that we cannot penetrate to the essence of things external to ourselves. Now, Jung is pointing out here from inside the field of his own discipline that all experience is psychic and that outside objects inevitably are translated into psychic images, so that it is the latter which we are conscious of, not the objects themselves, as in the case of naive realism. Indeed, elsewhere he can maintain that psyche is image, he underlines is, psyche is image, a statement, I think, of incalculable significance for the arts. Furthermore, in the passage before us, he is very much aware of the unnamed natural sciences being the artificial means whereby we now discover what outside objects are constituted of as separate entities, since we cannot break out of our psyches. There is another passage from The Structure and Dynamics of the Psyche which refines and develops these positions in terms of what he calls the psychological as against the realistic standpoint. This is the bottom passage on the first sheet. This is Jung now. But in order to explain briefly what I mean by the psychological standpoint, I must show that serious doubt can be cast on the exclusive validity of the realistic standpoint. Let us take as an example what a naive mind would consider to be the realest thing of all, namely matter. We can only make the dimmest theoretical guesses about the nature of matter, and these guesses are nothing but images created by our minds. The wave movements or solar emanations which meet my eye are translated by my perceptions into light. It is my mind with its store of images that gives the world color and sound and that supremely real and rational certainty, which I call experience, is in its most simple form an exceedingly complicated structure of mental images. Thus there is, in a certain sense, nothing that is directly experienced except the mind itself. Everything is mediated through the mind, translated, filtered, allegorized, twisted, even falsified by it. 
We are so enveloped in a cloud of changing and endlessly shifting images that we might well exclaim with a well-known skeptic, nothing is absolutely true, and even that is not quite true. <laughs> <clears throat> so thick and deceptive in this, is this fog about us that we had to invent the exact sciences in order to catch a glimmer of the so-called real nature of things. To a naive-minded person, of course, this almost too vivid world will not seem in the least foggy. But let him delve into the mind of a primitive and compare his picture of the world with that of civilized man, he will then have an inkling of the profound twilight in which we still live. What we know of the world and what we are immediately aware of in ourselves are conscious contents that flow from remote, obscure sources. I do not contest the relative validity either of the realistic standpoint, the essay in Re, this being in things, as it were, or of the idealistic standpoint, the essay in intellectu solo, or being in, in, in intellect alone. I would only like to unite these extreme opposites by an essay in anima, being in the spirit, which is a psychological standpoint. We live immediately only in the world of images. Now, this passage, like countless others in Jung's collected works, restates and reformulates a particular theme or thrust of insight that preoccupies him. It's a means of deepening clarification he is fond of, which I have come to notice. Here he not only repeats his description of our experience as consisting of psychic images, but also develops his critique of what he now terms the exclusive validity of the realistic standpoint, an all-pervasive view in today's secular world. From his psychological standpoint, he can even go so far as to say with Barclay that there is, in a certain sense, nothing that is directly experienced except the mind itself. He does, however, qualify with in a certain sense, and this, as we will see in a moment, is important. But he correctly restates that everything is mediated through the mind, translated, filtered, allegorized, twisted, even falsified by it. So that in order to break through this fog about us, we had to invent the exact sciences in order to catch a glimmer of the so-called real nature of things. We should note, though, that this is only a glimmer and that the word real is placed in inverted commas. For earlier in this same passage, you will recall that Jung has already said, in opposition to what a naive mind would consider to be the realest thing of all, namely matter, that we can make only the dimmest theoretical guesses about it. Something that echoes his previous statement from our first passage, we cannot penetrate to the essence of things external to ourselves. This is basically Kant's position, Immanuel Kant's position, regarding the essence of outside objects, or things in themselves, die Dinge an sich, as he puts it in his Prolegomena to any future metaphysics. I quote Kant now. As the senses never and in no single instance enable us to know things in themselves, but only their appearances, and as these are mere representations, bloßer Vorstellungen in the German, we talked about Vorstellung with Stephen Cross in connection with Schopenhauer, we'll come back to that. All bodies, together with the space in which they are, must be held to be nothing but mere representations in us, and exist nowhere else than merely in our thought. Now, is this not manifest idealism? asked Kant. Kant then says that this is not completely the case, since there are good grounds, he argued, for accepting the reality of things in themselves, only that we cannot know anything of them as they are. These are what he also calls noumena, which remain the external source of our experience. 
and whose reality can only be inferred by experiencing the particular phenomena they release. Essentially, this is Jung's position, for as he says, somewhere on the sheets, page four actually, this is Jung now, epistemologically, I take my stand on Kant. So this is where, uh, this is where Jung comes from. And of course, I would like to put in now, particularly with uh, Schopenhauer in mind, this is, Schopenhauer's po- uh, this is Schopenhauer's stance as well. He comes from Kant. Um, and I would like to quote uh, the opening of Schopenhauer's great wor- uh, work, The World as Will and Representation, this word Vorstellung, where he makes his position superbly clear, relating it in this, at the same time to India. This is very interesting because we come now from the inner renaissance to the oriental renaissance. Um, And as you will uh, see in a moment, he uses the term representation, exactly the same term as Kant used in the German Vorstellung. Um, And this is now the beginning, the opening uh, uh, um, sentence, I've made one or two uh, um, um, excisions, um, of Schopenhauer's work. The world is my representation. This is a truth valid with reference to every living and knowing being, although man alone can bring it into reflective, abstract consciousness. If he really does so, philosophical discernment has dawned on him. It then becomes clear and certain to him that he does not know a sun and an earth, but only an eye that sees a sun, a hand that feels an earth that the world around him is there only as representation, as Vorstellung. In other words, only in reference to another thing, namely that which represents. And this is himself. If any truth can be expressed a priori, it is this, for it is the statement of that form of all possible and conceivable experience, a form that is more general than all others. Then time, space, and causality, for all these presuppose it. The world is representation. This truth is by no means new. It was to be found already in the sceptical reflections from which Descartes started. Uh, But Berkeley was the first to enunciate it positively. And he has thus rendered an immortal service to philosophy. On the other hand, how early this basic truth was recognized by the sages of India... Since it, is, since it appears as the fundamental tenet of the Vedanta philosophy ascribed to Vyasa, is proved by Sir William Jones in the last of his essays on the philosophy of the Asiatics, Asiatic researchers. So you see in this way how Kant and Schopenhauer, and I'm arguing also Jung as well, are dead in line with the Indian view of reality, that it is Vorstellung, there is not a spade is a spade, or a stone that you simply uh, a kick, as it were. Um, to sum up at this point, Jung locates reality not in the material objects of the outside world, but initially in conscious contents, as he says, that flow from remote, obscure sources. He then finishes his previous passage with this summarizing statement you will recall. I do not contest the relative validity either of the realistic standpoint, the essay in Re, or of the idealistic standpoint, the essay in Intellectu Solo. I would only like to unite these extreme opposites by an essay in Anima, which is a psychological standpoint. He's arguing essentially for the middle way between the two extremes of being in terms of things and being in terms of intellect alone, 
and this he calls being in terms of spirit, esse and anima, which he maintains unites the first two. This he designates the psychological standpoint, but it is also a very German standpoint in its thinking via opposites, which then have to be united and so in some way transcended. Goethe, as we saw, stands on the same ground with his theory of life as involving a constant process of polar opposites and their fusion at a higher level, what he terms polarität und steigerung, polarity and intensification. And what Coleridge grasps as follows, quote Coleridge now, in life and in the view of a vital philosophy, the two component counterpowers actually interpenetrate each other and generate a higher third, including both the former. That's Coleridge. The emphasis is on a dialectical upward progression um, in all this, something which is contained in Goethe's term Steigerung, related as it is to the verb steigen, in German, it comes from the same basic stem, meaning to climb or to ascend, but which also possesses alchemical overtones. Indeed, it is just here that alchemy and Jungian psychology join hands. Even further, the overall German tradition of dialectical thinking in opposites and the alchemical process itself, which would seem to stand, as I see it, very much behind it. For the goal of alchemy is achieved via a complex process of solve et coagule, coagula, dissolving and coagulating the primary substance, the prima materia, a number of times, while simultaneously refining it so that we get an upward progression. And essentially, of course, this is what we find embodied in Jung's theory and principle of individuation. As he puts it in his autobiography, through understanding, this is Jung now, through understanding of alchemical symbolism, I arrived at the central concept of my psychology, the process of um, individuation. And he talks about it again as kind of the process of coming to selfhood, self-realization, in German Selbstverwirklichung. Um, and before I go on, perhaps I should indicate this. This concept of individuation in, uh, in Jung's sense is very close to the cognate idea of Bildung or education in German, uh, which is really the, the um, uh, what can one say, the, 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 the molding, the forming of a personality from outside through culture and education. It means not simply education in German, though it does mean that, but it implied in this is the concept of, of, of uh, formation or molding. And of course, Jung says elsewhere, the goal of the individuation process is the synthesis of the self, or again, the synthesis of conscious and unconscious elements in the personality. And the principle of individuation as such seems to come directly from both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. They both talk in different ways about the so-called principi Principium Individuationis. But it goes farther back as well as we'll see later on. However, note that before Jung was able to get that far, that is say to, uh, to f discover and to elaborate his theory of individuation, his basic conception of the nature and function of the human psyche was such as to, land, as, as to lead him, I think, in this direction. This is Jung now. Just as all energy proceeds from opposition, so the psyche too possesses its inner polarity, this being the indisputable prerequisite for its aliveness, as Heraclitus realized long ago. Both theoretically and practically, polarity is inherent in all living things. 
And Jung's position here is that of Taoism's uh, yin-yang, symbolization of life's forces, something which accounts for his intuitive and enthusiastic reception in 1928 of, quote Jung now, the manuscript of a Taoist alchemical treatise entitled The Secret of the Golden Flower, sent to him by Richard Wilhelm, of which Jung then said, quote Jung, light on the nature of alchemy began to come to me only after I had read the text of the Golden Flower. An interesting sidelight on the theme of our Oriental uh, Renaissance. It is now easy to see that whatever Jung maintains, which he does quite vociferously, that his approach to dealing with the psyche and its problems is that of, quote, an empiricist first and foremost, his view of its nature and functioning is anything but empiricist, as we shall see in some detail. But to start with, it's sufficient to quote his surprise on finding out the following after reading a book on Fichte's psychology and its relation to the present, for which he then wrote the foreword. This is Jung. Naturally, I'm familiar with Leibniz, C.G. Karos, and von Hartmann, but I never knew till now that my psychology is romantic. I hold that in spite of all abstractions, ob objectivity, absence of bias, and empiricism, Everyone thinks as he thinks, and sees as he sees. Accordingly, if there is a type of mind or a disposition that thinks and interprets romantically, analogous conclusions will emerge, no matter whether they are coloured by the subject or by the object. That's between pages two and three of the sheets. One thinks immediately of Blake's well-known <coughs> statement, defending in a letter his kind of painting and vision. I see everything I paint in this world, but everybody does not see alike. As a man is, so he sees. As the eye is formed, such are his powers. Are its powers. Thus in Jung's case, as a practicing doctor and psychologist concerned with healing, we get an approach to mental illness and psychological problems, a methodology in short, which he is never tired of stressing, is scientific and empirical. I am an empiricist first and foremost, and my views are grounded in experience. Um, and again, um, on the sheets we get this. I approach psychological matters from a scientific and not from a philosophical standpoint. Inasmuch as religion has a very important psychological aspect, I deal with it from a purely empirical point of view. That is, I restrict myself to the observation of phenomena and I eschew any metaphysical or philosophical considerations. Statements of, of a similar nature as these can be seen scattered right throughout the collected works in order, I think, repeatedly to stress the fact, thereby defending himself from his critics, that whatever his findings about the nature of the human psyche turn out to be, they are neither those of a metaphysician nor a mystic, but those of a doctor, psychiatrist, and long-standing explorer of the psyche, who has simply been reporting over the years what he has discovered, However, and this is the all-decisive point, Jung's emergent concept and view of the psyche, um, in line with the earlier German names he has referred to, namely Leibniz, Karos, and Hartmann, are not, as already stated, those endemic to the empiricist account uh, of them. And the empirical findings from his psychiatric work would seem to have supposed, indeed perhaps we don't know, pointed towards such a concept and view. So let us now turn to Jung himself as he describes and unpacks the key empiricist concept of the mind, namely that of Locke's tabula rasa. The mind as blank or raised tablet gives us uh, a givenness at birth. 
what Locke calls white paper, void of all characters. <coughs> Hence, without innate ideas, and not even preformed, vorgeformt in Jungian terms. Quote Jung. But the psyche of the child in its pre-conscious state is anything but a tabula rasa. It is already preformed in a recognizably individual way and is moreover equipped with all specifically human instincts, as well as with the a priori foundations of the higher functions. And at uh, the bottom of pages four to five, he goes at some detail to say this. This is important. <coughs> One likes to think of the human mind as originally a tabula rasa that gradually gets covered with perceptions and experiences of life and the world. From this standpoint, which is a standpoint of empirical science in general, an idea cannot be anything else but an epiphenomenal a posteriori abstraction from experiences, and consequently even feebler and more colourless than they are. <coughs> we know, however, that the mind cannot be a tabula rasa, for epistemological criticism shows us that certain categories of thinking are given a priori. Obviously, he has Kant in mind, as he goes on to say. They are antecedent to all experience and appear with the first act of thought, of which they are its preformed determinants. What Kant demonstrated in respect of logical thinking is true of the whole range of the psyche. The psyche is no more tabula rasa to begin with than is the mind proper, the thinking area. Hence, the newborn brain is an immensely old instrument fitted out for quite specific purposes, which does not only apperceive passively, <coughs> but actively arranges the experiences of its own accord and enforces certain conclusions and judgments. These patterns of experience are by no means accidental or arbitrary. They follow strictly preformed conditions which are not transmitted by experience as contents of apprehension, but are the preconditions of all apprehension. They are ideas anti-rem, before the thing, determinants of form, a kind of pre-existent ground plan that gives the stuff of experience a specific configuration so that we may think of them as Plato did, as images, as schemata, or as an inherited functional possibilities which nevertheless exclude other possibilities or at any rate limit them to a very great extent. Um, in this passage, it is clear that regarding the nature of mind or psyche, Jung is quite consciously anti-scientific in terms of science's run-of-the-mill account of consciousness. However, there are quite a number of scientists, particularly now, uh, at this point in time, who have come much more over towards Jung's point of view. For as Jung states, from the standpoint of empirical science in general, an idea cannot be anything else but an epiphenomenal a posteriori abstraction from experiences. That is, it is epiphenomenal in the sense of being simply derived from phenomena and the world of experience, hence secondary, incidental and subordinate to experience from outside. A posteriori, or from what comes after, as implying the dependency or contingency of ideas as effects created by outside causes. The crucial event which demolishes this attitude is for Jung the epistemological criticism, to use his term, he mentions, which is, of course, Kantian. What Kant demonstrated in respect of logical thinking is true of the whole range of the psyche. What this, what this admission boils down to is that Jung has taken on board Kant's revolutionary account of mind, his so-called Copernican revolution, and extended it to cover the whole of the psyche. Um, 
he, um, one last point on this passage. When talking of these patterns of experience as being by no means accidental or arbitrary, Jung is very close to the so-called Gestalt psychologists um, working in Frankfurt around 1910. Wolfgang Köhler, Max Wertheimer, and Kurt Kofke whose researches into the psychology of perception resulted in their discovery that we tend to operate in terms of configurations, patterns, or holistic units of perceived experience, what they call gestalten, which means forms or shapes in German. This can best be illustrated by comparing the structure and composition of a soap bubble with a pile of coins. Whereas a soap bubble... Um, is an organized whole from which nothing can be subtracted since it bursts, or indeed added to, a pile of coins can be subtracted from and added to at will without disturbing the uh, the pile. In short, uh, the pile of coins is an aggregate of things, atomistic, if you like, not a fused synthetic whole. An aggregate of things is then an empiricist model of mind and psyche, a fused synthetic whole, a Jungian model, with simply the Gestalt theory of perception applied to the overall psyche. Um, And where at deep levels also the archetypes would seem to dwell as Gestalten. I'm reminded of what Jung says in his memories, quote Jung now, that the Archetypes are irrepresentable and conscious pre-existent forms um, that seem to be part of the inherited structure of the psyche. Um, In this connection, it's just worth mentioning that Coleridge saw the nature of fancy as opposed to imagination as consisting in, quote Coleridge, the aggregative and associative power. Like Jung, he'd studied his Kant. In passing, I would like to say that I've come to believe that this pervasive model of mind, that is to say the empiricist model of mind, has had disastrous consequences in the field of artistic form, making us unable to rise above the level of facts and their accumulation and agglomeration. Um, And on this head, um, it's interesting to quote the English Jungian uh, H.G. Baines in his book Analytical Psychology and the English Mind, where he has this convincing insight, I think, to make. This is Baines. It is not without interest that for the practical Anglo-Saxon mind, the word reality is derived from raise thing, whereas with the more introverted German mind, the word Wirklichkeit, that's the word for reality, derives from wirken to effect. What has effect upon the mind, whether coming from within or without, is therefore the basis of reality for German psychology, not just the thing um, as such. And Baines, incidentally, knew Jung very well, uh, being his assistant for several years and accompanying him on his expedition to Africa. But to sum up at this point... Jung's view of the psyche, like that of most of his compatriots, in one way or another, is that it is not in the least a random um, haphazard affair based on the vagaries of intake from outside, but on the contrary reveals a kind of pre-existent ground plan that gives the stuff of experience uh, a specific configuration. In this sense, it possesses an aesthetic structure as in a work of art. And in similar fashion, as we shall see, it's concerned with meaning and purpose. Hence, qualities, not quantities. Um, 
finally here, and clinching what we have said earlier about the psychic image, Jung in his volume Psychological Types has this to say, when I speak of image in this book, I do not mean the psychic reflection of an external object, but a concept derived from poetic usage, namely a figure of fancy or fantasy image, which is related only indirectly to the perception of an external object. Now, so far, we've emphasized the primacy of mind and psyche in Jung and the tradition he comes from, their structured nature and the relation to outside reality in terms of perception theory. In all this, we have uh, said hardly anything about the unconscious and its role, something which, of course, as you all know, um, sits at the heart of Jung's psychology and of which he remains the great advocate. In his autobiography, he states, quote Jung, our basis is ego consciousness. Our world, the field of light, centered upon the focal point of the ego. But that, quote Jung again, closer study shows that the images of the unconscious have a reality and spontaneity of their own. Nevertheless, we regard them as mere marginal phenomena. Jung then goes on to say that by virtue of two key dreams he has just had, those emissaries of the unconscious, he has been forced to reverse his position. Quote Jung again, the aim of both these dreams was to effect a reversal of the relationship between ego consciousness and the unconscious, and to represent the unconscious as the generator of the empirical personality. This reversal suggests that, in the opinion of the other side, our unconscious existence is the real one, and our conscious world a kind of illusion, an apparent reality constructed for a, spe for a specific purpose, like a dream which seems a reality as long as we are in it. It is clear that this state of affairs resembles very closely the oriental conception of Maya. And he has a brilliant insight there, but it's just by the way, where he talks about uh, the, ego, the ego as being the um, empirical man. The ego is the empirical man. The primacy of the unconscious part now then of the psyche presented here as a keystone is not only the result quite clearly of Jung's own self-analysis and its substantiation from work carried out at the Burghölzli Mental Hospital at Zürich, but has also been prepared for um, by a whole way of thinking with roots going back to Burma and um, German uh, mysticism. Um, We can start, for instance, with Leibniz, only incipiently, of course, in his accreditation of subliminal awareness to the mind in the form of so-called petite perception. Leibniz didn't write in German, he wrote in French um, or Latin. Um, then more crucially, um, there is Fichte, um, with his extended role of the self in creating our knowledge of the world by being more active and creative, reconciling innate opposite forces and striving for a higher kind of unity. Um, and with Fichte you get what is also arch-romantic, of course, a stress on, on self-enfolding and self-expressing uh, via um, his own particular inner dialectic of, um, of growth. He very much expands um, Kant's awareness of the crucial participation of the mind or the psyche, whichever one you wants to use now, in what we see and how we perceive the world. When we go on to Schelling, who is another uh, um, key 
uh, figure here, there is more sense that mind and nature are engaged in a mutually interdependent process of creative interaction. Schelling also sees art as a unity of the conscious with the unconscious, with the human spirit evolving to self-consciousness out of the matrix of the unconscious, a very Jungian uh, position. Then again, one has to remember Hegel's account of the historical development of the spirit um, in terms of his movement, is of a triadic movement of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, which is a resolution of the first two at a higher level. Um, and the movement out of a state of natural one oneness via conflict to a higher position of self-consciousness. That is very similar in the outward historical cultural field to what Jung, uh, or to the way in which Jung sees the process of individuation inside uh, uh, um, the psyche. Um, and then, of course, there is, there is Schopenhauer himself, um, the key concept of will, uh, one could replace that in many ways with Jung's concept of the unconscious. And Schopenhauer himself makes great use of the term das Unbewusste, the unconscious. Uh, then there's Goethe's recognition throughout his work, both of the role of the unconscious and the power of the daimonic in the Greek sense. Um, as when he says of the creative imagination, this is Goethe, where consciousness and unconsciousness are like warp and weft. Or later and famously, uh, Nietzsche's outburst against, quote Nietzsche now, the absurd over, overestimation of consciousness in the West as a supreme kind of being, as God. <laughs> um, with all this then at the back of him, let alone Freud's uh, discoveries, especially as, uh, as expounded in the interpretation of dreams, which Jung of course read avidly as, um, as a relatively young man when it came out, it's little wonder that the structure and workings of the unconscious should dominate um, his work. Um, at this juncture, while keeping to the topic of dream interpretation, I would like to introduce some comments recently made by my old teacher, Kathleen Rain in a marvelously compact foreword she has written to a new edition of, uh, of Dreams. This is, you pass this around, uh, uh, um, it's avidly as, um, as a relatively young man when it came out. It's little wonder that the structure and workings of the unconscious should dominate um, his work. Um, at this juncture, while keeping to the topic of dream interpretation, I would like to introduce some comments recently made by my old teacher, Kathleen Rain, in a marvelously compact foreword she has written to a new edition of, uh, of Dreams. This is, you pass this around, uh, uh, um, it's a conspectus from Jung's work. Um, um, Dr. Rain makes several key points which fit in with and reinforce, I think, my line of argument, and also bring in others I haven't touched on. She begins by saying that, quote now, in the course of the 20th century, I would say without hesitation that the greatest change in the mental experience of the modern West has been the discovery or rediscovery of the inner world of the psyche. Jung's key role in this change, obviously here in the forefront of her mind, and retrospectively, in the light of what I've just been saying, I think we can implicate the entire German tradition in this, 
and keeping Stephen Cross's lectures in mind, the part also played by India in this. I see India and Germany as linking up extremely powerfully in just this particular way. Um, Dr. Rain then goes on to say, quote, that to Jung we owe the discovery that the psyche is structured, controlled by archetypes corresponding to what in earlier civilization in earlier civilizations were known as the gods. These archetypes, the structuring potencies and forms of the psyche, were found to live deep in the center of our inner worlds and as psychic principles and powers to rule and or conflict within, just like gods and goddesses of myth. Hence Jung's great interest in and knowledge of mythologies, fairy tales and epics, with its original cultural base founded, I think, on the education he received first um, at Basel Gymnasium, the school he went to, then at the university there, where Nietzsche, Jakob Burkhardt, the Renaissance scholar, and J.J. Bachhofen, author of the once influential uh, Mutterrecht, or Mother Right of 1861, had all lectured. From Bachhofen, Jung would have learned quite a lot about tomb symbolism, as well as other things. And it's interesting to note that his concept of the archetype derives from Burkhard's use of the term primordial image, urtümliches Bild, or urbild, as he himself, this is Jung now, uh, admits. This is the bottom of page six on your sheets. What I understand by it, that is archetype, is identical with the primordial image, a term borrowed from Jakob Burkhardt. While at the same time he traces, in the paragraph above, you will notice history from St. Augustine to Schopenhauer. Um, Jung then draws out his analogy with Schopenhauer uh, much further, and this is interesting. For Schopenhauer, the idea is a visual thing, for he conceives it entirely in the way I conceive the primordial image. Schopenhauer clearly discerned that the idea, or the primordial image as I define it, cannot be produced in the same way that a concept or an idea in the ordinary sense can. There clings to it an element almost uh, an element beyond rational formulation, rather like Schopenhauer's temper akin to genius, which simply means a state of feeling. One can get to the primordial image from the idea only because the path that led to the idea passes over the summit into the counterfunction feeling. What is interesting in this passage is that Jung's archetypes, like Schopenhauer's ideas, are conceived visually and as being feeling-tinged unlike the usual rational concepts, as in Kant, for instance, with the result that they comprise for Jung two opposed psychic functions, thinking and its counterfunction, feeling, resulting in a fusion of two polar opposites, a complexio oppositorum, as Jung would term it. As, an, as a Jungian acquaintance of mine has pointed out to me, there are hardly any references to music throughout Jung's work, but the visual arts are everywhere, the splendid, symbolically rich illustrations that accompany several key volumes, the descriptions and recountings of myths and fairy tales are highly visual, as are the interpretations of all the various symbols, the alchemical ones, of course, which are provided with their own illustrations, and finally, most notably, a key Jungian symbol of wholeness, the temenos. Whether as actual sacred precinct, in the form of a building such as a temple, shrine or church, or as an inner terminus in dream analysis, we find that visual architecture or an enclosed space um, um, is evoked. 
In fact, now that I think of it, it is this richly vast visual legacy deriving from and, in and inhabiting not only Jung's surrounding culture, but also his own and his patients' dream worlds, which contribute so much to his own psychology, backed up as it is by an intimate knowledge and use of the related fields of literature and uh, philosophy. Uh, on this point, I should add as well that I've noticed on several occasions there is a distrust uh, of language in Jung. He's very uh, um, ambivalent about the nature of language, uh, much more important for Jung, and in his treatment of the whole of the, of, of the psyche, um, um, is the visual image, or the image that's in some sense visual in one way or the other. I take it because images are pre-linguistic and more appropriate to the world of dreams and the psyche in general. Um, another important point for my purpose that Dr. Rain allows to emerge in her foreword is the contrast Jung himself makes between the causal approach of Freud vis-a-vis -vis dream interpretation and Jung's so-called final approach. And she quotes the central passage. This is Jung now. This is not on your sheets. From the standpoint of finality, the images in a dream each have an intrinsic value of their own. It recognizes no fixed meaning in symbols, from this standpoint, all the dream images are important in themselves, each one having a special significance of its own, to which indeed it owes its inclusion in the dream. It does not conceal, it teaches. Relating dream images and situations back to their ostensible causes would entail the procedures of empirical science, and Jung takes due stock of this, but then points out the following. The causal point of view is obviously more sympathetic to the scientific spirit of our time with its strictly ca causalistic reasoning. Much may be said for Freud's view as a scientific explanation of dream psychology, but I must dispute its completeness. For the psyche cannot be conceived merely in causal terms, but requires also a final view. Only a combination of points of view, which has not yet been achieved in a scientifically satisfactory manner, owing to the enormous difficulties, both practical and theoretical, that still remain to be overcome, can give us a more complete conception of the nature of dreams. Jung's stance here, as elsewhere, is fair-minded, yet critically appraising of Freud. And he himself, wherever he thinks it is valid and necessary, makes use of empirical methods as in the case of what he terms the relatively fixed symbols, which he says are individually marked by subtle shifts of meaning. And, quote Jung again, it is only through comparative studies in mythology, folklore, religion, and philology that we can evaluate their nature scientifically. One notes the range of cultural disciplines called for, even more so perhaps the fact that meaning and evaluation are accentuated. Which brings me to my next point. Namely, that Jung's psychology is fundamentally concerned with interpreting and evaluating what he terms psychic phenomena, not primarily like Freud what causes these. Hence, he is never reductive. And as he says in the second passage on page one of our sheets, my standpoint is exclusively phenomenological. That is, it is concerned with occurrences, events, experiences, in a word, with facts. Ah, but these are facts of mind, as Coleridge understood them, and which for both men possess as much validity as the natural facts of the outside world, and for Jung himself as psychologist, of equal status to that of biological specimens and laboratory findings, 
even though he was quite aware of the subjective factors involved. Again, as he maintained, psychology cannot establish any metaphysical truths, nor does it try to. It is concerned solely with the phenomenology of the psyche. Now, the establishing of the individual psyche's phenomena is empirically carried out and documented. The interpreting and evaluating of all this, however, has to entail, from Jung's point of view, meanings, purposes and qualitative differences. Therefore, something radically other is called for. And this is where the German tradition of interpretation, or hermeneutic as the Germans call it, hermeneutics comes in. Starting from the late 18th century exegesis of scriptural texts by J.G. Eichhorn, interestingly both a biblical scholar and orientalist, and who provided the Victorians with the term the higher criticism, and by Friedrich Schleiermacher, the Protestant theologian who was the first to develop a theory of, quote, general hermeneutics as the art of understanding. This inaugurated a long and distinguished tradition of interpreting and not only biblical texts, which has continued up to the present with Hans-Georg Gadamer, a pupil and friend of Heidegger, himself a key figure in this tradition. Gadamer died, incidentally, earlier this year. I think he was either 100 or 101. <laughs> Quite incredible. Um, anyway, it is difficult to say what, to what extent Jung was influenced by all this. On the other hand, it is equally difficult to see how he could have escaped it, especially when we take this message, this passage from a letter to Henri Corbin as a lead. This is Jung replying to what uh, Corbin said. Your intuition is astounding. Schleiermacher really is one of my spiritual ancestors. He even baptized my grandfather, born a Catholic, who by then was a doctor. The vast esoteric and individual spirit of Schleiermacher was a part of the intellectual atmosphere of my father's family. I never studied him, but unconsciously he was for me a, a spiritus rector. Schleiermacher, incidentally, is the fountainhead, I suppose, of, of German Protestant theology, right, uh, right the way up through people like, like Karl Barth and Emil Brunner and, and Paul Tillich and so on and so forth. And at, at this point, it's worth pointing out that Jung, like Schleiermacher, was born into a Lutheran pastor's family, which throughout the 19th and 20th centuries produced a galaxy of talents, and not only theologians, such as Lessing, the Schlegels, Nietzsche, and others. So that there is a definite sense in which Jung's lifelong attempt to penetrate, as he says, into the secret of the personality, as he puts it in his autobiography, and read its meanings, and interpreting its images and symbols, is an extension of hermeneutics to the human psyche. In his excellent and perceptive In Search of Jung, Historical and Philosophical Inquiries, J.J. Clarke has alerted us to the fact that the brilliant hermeneutical philo uh, philosopher Wilhelm Diltai, 1833-1911, was lecturing at the University of Basel during the 1860s, and that although Jung nowhere mentions him, it is very unlikely that he knew nothing about him. And the decisive point to stress vis-à-vis -vis Diltai's probable significance for Jung is that starting out from Schleiermacher, he shifted the whole field of hermeneutics from interpreting scriptural texts to that of what is called in German the Geisteswissenschaften, the sciences of the spirit, we'd say the uh, humanities, his own coinage, which could then include and did 
all cultural artifacts and modes of creative expression from symbols, paintings, buildings, psychological patterns and configurations as these manifest themselves artistically and socially or religious beliefs. His area of scholarly interpretation was astonishingly wide-ranging and in some sense can be said to mirror his textual approach of the so-called hermeneutical circle, which involves the principle and procedure that, in order to understand and hence interpret any text, or by extension any aesthetic production, you have to understand and can only understand the total work via the individual units of meaning, and vice versa, each unit of meaning only in the light of the total work and what, um, and what it implies. Also, as M. H. Abrahams has said, quote Abrahams now, Diltai maintained uh, that, the that the hermeneutic circle is not a vicious circle, in that we can achieve a valid interpretation by a sustained, mutually qualifying in interplay between our progressive sense of the whole and our retrospective understanding of its component parts. His approach is therefore both detailed, this is uh, Diltai now, Diltai's approach is therefore both detailed and holistic. And one can certainly find similarities with this in Jungian readings of the psyche and its images. Also, Diltai was supremely aware of the role played by the historical and cultural context out of which texts and works of art arose as well as the relevance of adjacent fields of study in helping to determine or corroborate levels of meaning. J.J. Clarke even goes so far as to suggest, interestingly, that Diltai's method of using interpretively, quote Clarke now, a continual oscillation between text and context, comparing one with the other, is highly reminiscent of Jung's principle of amplification. That is, one of Jung's procedures used in dream interpretation and defined in the glossary to his autobiography as, quote, this is probably not Jung himself, but his assistant, Anila Jaffa, elaboration and clarification of a dream image by means of directed association. That is, spontaneous ideas which proceed from a given dream situation and constantly relate to it. And of parallels from the humane sciences, this is the point, symbology, mythology, mysticism, folklore, history of religion, ethnology, etc., but more fundamental still is Diltai's discovery and promotion of the principle of Verstehen, or understanding, for grasping the nature of the arts, the Geisteswissenschaften, as opposed to the principle of Erklären, or explaining, appropriate to the sciences, Naturwissenschaften. And unlike explanation, understanding in German, and in keeping with its cognate form Verständnis, meaning sympathetic understanding for someone or, or something, implies the activation and implementation of totally other faculties than those under the head of scientific explanation. Significantly, too, the process of Verstehen involves for Diltai an imaginative Erleben and or Nacherleben, that's experiencing and or afterwards experiencing, um, of the particular artwork, text, and cultural event or movement. That is to say, you experience the work of art or whatever as you go through, through it, but then after you've gone through it, or even while you are reading it or looking at it, you may want to, and you do, we do, go back over it. And the German word for this is nachleben, to experience afterwards. In all this, Diltai can be seen as providing the human 
and or nachherleben, that's experiencing and or afterwards experiencing, um, of the particular artwork, text, and cultural event or movement. That is to say, you experience the work of art or whatever as you go through, through it, but then after you've gone through it or even while you are reading it or looking at it you may want to and you do we do go back over it and the German word for this is nachherleben to experience afterwards in all this Diltai can be seen as providing the humanities and works of art not only with a very different rationale from works of science and thereby assigning them to another sphere of being but also via his emphasis on verstehen and afterwards experiencing, opening the way to psychological dimensions. It is this kind of mode of thought, this kind of cultural approach and ambience, which is best able to indicate, I feel, where Jung is coming from and his immense cultural range. Um, keeping now his family and educational cultural background in mind, it's then further possible to see, I believe, how such a psychologist's preoccupation with the unconscious and the discovery of a collective as well as a personal uh, a terrain existing and operating there can become both, quote Jung, the matrix of a mythopoeic imagination which has vanished from our rational age, this is from the autobiography, and the location of the existence of a god image from the book uh, on dreams. And one notices here, of course, the linkage to be made between mythopoeic imagination and the presence of the god image. Of the latter, the glossary to memories, dreams, reflections states that it is, quote, a term derived from the church fathers, according to whom the imago dei is imprinted on the human soul. Then in specific union terms, we find when such an image is spontaneously produced in dreams, fantasies, visions, etc., it is, from the psychological point of view, a symbol of the self, or psychic whole, of psychic wholeness. And Jung himself, in Psychology and Religion, West and East, further adds, quote Jung, the God image does not coincide with the unconscious as such, but with a special content of it, namely the archetype of the self. It is this archetype from which we can no longer distinguish uh, the God image empirically. And finally, Jung again, one can then explain the God image as a reflection of the self, or conversely, explain the self as an imago dei in man. Now, a preoccupation with and continual questing to locate the God within is something in Demston. East further adds, quote Jung, the God image does not coincide with the unconscious as such, but with a special content of it, namely the archetype of the self. It is this archetype from which we can no longer distinguish uh, the God image empirically. And finally, Jung again, one can then explain the God image as a reflection of the self, or conversely, explain the self as an imago dei in man. Now, a preoccupation with and continual questing to locate the God within is something endemic to both German mysticism and German music. One thinks of Meister Eckhard, Hildegard von Bingen, uh, Nikolaus Cusanus, uh, Böhme, Angelus uh, uh, Silesius, and others, whose overall impact, I think, is taken up into German Romanticism. And in the second stream, we get, of course, people like uh, composers like Bach, Schütz, uh, Beethoven, Brahms, the Wagner of Parsifal, and others through to Stockhausen. Um, it, on, on this point, it's uh, just a short quote from Thomas Mann, in um, a heartfelt uh, lecture he gave during the war, uh, um, 
about Germany, and I'll just give you the, the English here, for abstract and mystical, that means musical, is the German's relationship with the world. For my argument, what is noticeable in all this is the shift away from dogma and theology and the relocation of the sacred within the realm of human experience. This certainly has its roots in Romanticism's discovery of the sacred dimension in nature, as it does in its new opening of the inner worlds and its parallel rediscovery of sacred dimensions there. And generally speaking, but not only in Germany, there is a reconnection of the religious in um, uh, there's a reconcentration, I'm sorry, of the religious and personal experience away from institutions and outside authorities. As witness William James's influential Varieties of Religious Experience, the term is important, 1902. Indeed, from now on, the experiential side of religion becomes opened up in such key works as Rudolf Otto's The Idea of the Holy, 1917, and Martin Buber's I and Thou, uh, 1923. And this is an area in which Jungian psychology is at home, I think, and in part at least derives from, as in this passage. This is Jung from the autobiography. Our psyche, this is not on the sheets, our psyche is set up in accord with the structure of the universe. And what happens in the macrocosm likewise happens in the, in, in the infinitesimal and most subjective reaches of the psyche. For that reason, the God image is always a projection of the inner experience of a powerful vis-a-vis. This, this, uh, um, this is symbolized by objects from which the inner experience has taken its initial impulse and which from then on uh, preserve numinous significance or else it is characterized by its numinosity. In this way, the imagination liberates itself from the concretism of the object and attempts to sketch the image of the invisible as something which stands behind the phenomenon. I'm thinking here of the simplest basic form of the mandala, the circle, and the simplest mental division of the circle, the quadrant, or as the case may be, the cross. Now, apart from the overall thrust of this paragraph, with its emphasis on the God image and the inner experience, the use of numinous and numinosity comes, of course, straight from Rudolf Otto, whose coinages they were. Furthermore, Otto defines the numinous as what he terms a contrast harmony, literally a contrastive harmony, uh, but perhaps more closely uh, a kind of concordia discourse, the inharmonious concourse, the thing that one of the themes that Edgar Wint makes so much of in his book on, the, on, the, on pagan mysteries in the Renaissance. Um, and this fits in with, with um, um, Otto's main definition of a state it describes as a mysterium tremendum et fascinans, a mystery both fearful and bewitching, a fusion of opposites that Jung has called the complexio oppositorium of the God image. Uh, out of which a synthesis of, op of opposites within the psyche can result in that age-old symbol of the mandala si signifying the wholeness of the self. Or, quote Jung again, to put it in mythic terms, the divinity incarnate in man. Rudolf Otto, a distinguished Sanskrit scholar, by the way, who had travelled to India, already talks of the mandala as a magic circle of images used for purposes of contemplation. So that all in all, it seems as if both Jung and Otto are mining the same or similar veins of ore, with some influence and or reinforcement from the latter and the former. 
Again, Martin Buber with his dialogical account of religious experience and relationships via Ich Du, that's I You, and Ich Es, I It, is not far removed from the same area of mutual concerns when one thinks of the holistic and interactive nature of the I-U realm as opposed to the objective functionalism of the um, I-It relationship so characteristic of the modern world, let him, yet let alone the importance of the former for psychotherapy. Early on in my talk, I briefly mentioned the connections between alchemy and Jung's psychology, and we all know about his deep and prolonged study of the alchemical tradition over many years. I quoted his statement that through understanding of alchemical symbolism, I arrived, he says, at the central concept of my psychology, as opposed to the objective functionalism of the um, I-It relationship, so characteristic of the modern world, let, him, yet, let alone the importance of the former for psychotherapy. Early on in my talk, I briefly mentioned the connections between alchemy and Jung's psychology, and we all know about his deep and prolonged study of the alchemical tradition over many years. I quoted his statement that through understanding of alchemical symbolism, I arrived, he says, at the central concept of my psychology, the process of individuation, and also his connection, indeed identification with Goethe, not least on this head and in the matter of the poet's own, th own theory, alchemical in nature of polarität und Steigerung, polarity and intensification, which Jung then, via his own studies in, uh, in alchemy, was able to discern as mirroring both the polar structure of the psyche as well as its processes of transformation. And though, of course, alchemy is by no means a German creation, from Paracelsus onwards, the German contribution, I think, is significant and fundamental. Um, in its impact and influence on the culture and the thinking. And therefore, let me uh, finish with a quote from Kathleen's um, foreword to the book on dreams. Alchemy is the mythology which Jung made most use of in his thought and practice, and this places him within the tradition of German imaginative thought and practice, Goethe in particular, and the remarkable history of German philosophy and romanticism. Thank you very much. If you have any points you wish to raise or, or, or questions to ask, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Or, or things that I, I didn't have time to deal with on the sheets, um, um, please do ask me and I will try to do what I can. Yes? Can I ask you about the quotation from Thomas Mann? Yes. And, and the, I missed the date of it. Ah, I, yes. I, um, I think it's three pages back. Yes. Um, let me see. Yes. Um, it... Um, it comes from a, a collection of essays called Sorge um Deutschland, concern, it's more than concern, it, it, it's, it implies kind of grief almost uh, around Germany. It's of course because of what the Nazis had done during the war. And he was really trying to um, kind of point to certain qualities in, 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 in the German makeup that led them in one way rather than another. Um, and and uh, I think what also comes out there is elsewhere that, uh, uh, but of course I don't want to go into this necessarily, is that um, the, the abstract and the mystical, which for man, when combined together, means musical.
You see, the abstract qualities of, of... And I think he's thinking there of instrumental music, particularly, which the Germans are particularly masters at. Um, th- th- um, that these characteristics um, somehow um, are positives and negatives, as we all have positive and negative character, uh, characteristics. But I think it's a very insightful insight into uh, um, some qualities about the German mind. But it's also very interesting if you... And it'd be well worth for me certainly yeah. to look at is the development of abstract expressionism. I see. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. As a different language yeah. coming yeah. out of the yeah. same source. Yes. Yes. Which is a really interesting. Which, which of course, um, I don't know off the top of my head the German uh, um, uh, kind of input here. I mean, genetically now, but to the abstract expressionists in New York, of course, in the fifties yes, yes, and yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. But what you put your finger on, which is which is very true, and obviously relates to. Um, Jung's concern with the psyche and others, the, the expressionist movement, which is very North, North European and German, is really concerned with, and also in Edward Munch, what is inside projected outwards. This fits in with what I've been saying uh, this evening. This is very German, very much, totally different from French Impressionism in this way. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. quite right. Yeah. David. I just wanted to comment yeah. that um, in his novel Dr. Faustus, yes. uh, which spans both world wars, yes. Yes. Uh, man seems to speak very personally mm-hmm. when he laments, if you like, the demise of these two cataclysms of the old type of cultured, civilized German. Yeah. Equally, his description of Adrian Leverkusen's yeah. music yeah. Yeah. Uh, led to him being sued by Schoenberg. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you felt the same, or whether you also feel that type of tradition, mystical uh, culture has entirely disappeared now in the modern Germany, as it continued. That's an interesting question. Um, I, it's, it's very difficult to say. Um, I don't think it's quite disappeared. I see some signs of it still being retained, however one interprets him, in the contemporary German painter Anselm Kiefer. Uh He would be one example that I can think of. Um, I would have to think about this. I mean, no no name comes to me um, automatically. And it may mean, as with all these traditions, maybe the tradition is is kind of rearranging or re-resolving itself. But I, I wouldn't have thought it is totally eclipsed. Um, something that is so deeply rooted and indigenous, I would have thought will still go on in some way or the other. Though obviously um, Germany since the war and because of the war has been exposed to so many other influences and also in, uh, in all kinds of other ways because of the war, um, a total um, collective uh, psychic collapse in a way. Oh, yeah. Because when I lived and worked there, yes. which is 30 years ago now, yes, yes. one felt at that time the Germans had a very deep ambivalence yes. about the past, obviously in the sense that Hitler had pulled Germany out of the ruins yes, and yet had done all these terrible things. And it was as if, and of course Germany, having been so badly bombed, yes. was largely a new country. And yeah, the yeah. old traditions had been completely shattered. And they didn't actually want to look back very far. There's, yes, there is obviously some truth in what you are saying. This is this is um, 
a very difficult area to interpret, of course, at the moment. Um, it may be half and half. I mean, what you just said now is true. On the other hand, I think that other things also still come through. Having said this, of course, Thomas Mann himself was a, was a major critic of things German, also in German culture and that. Um, but what is interesting, if you, say, take Mann as, as an example, is because of the, um, of the debacle is the profound at the deepest level of national self-criticism that went on. Now, not every country uh, does this, <laughs> or perhaps has the necessity, well, they may have the necessity to do it, but, they, but uh, one doesn't do it unless one comes into a great debacle, a, a kind of total national cultural collapse, as it were. I would suggest that uh, the Japanese didn't, for example. Didn't. Didn't. That the, may be most economic restructuring. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that may be so. But in, in terms yeah. of yeah. in terms of yeah. self scrutiny. Maybe not, yes. Yeah. Hence, for instance, the difficulty of uh, getting the emperor to, uh, you know, to, to apologize and all this kind of uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but maybe in this we must remember that um, Germany, um, after the Second World War, had, had two world wars behind them, which they lost in one sense or the other. Japan only had the, 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 the last world war. Maybe this has something to do with it. I simply don't know. But in Germany's case, I feel having uh, twice, for whatever reasons, and the reasons are extremely complicated, um, engaged in two world wars within half a century, this must make any nation think, <laughs> and quite uh, profoundly. And this has certainly happened. I, I think you're probably right, um, as far as I know, about that difference between uh, the German experience, the after-war experience, and the, the, the um, and Japan. Kathleen, yes. So what I always wonder about Jung hmm. is the point at which Jung and Henri Corbin, yeah. who were up to a certain time mm -hmm. and a certain point, great friends, mm -hmm. But there is a great difference because mm -hmm. uh, whereas Jung sees, I can't but feel, God as a psychic image, of course, mm -hmm. Comin sees the psyche as the recipient of a metaphysical um, influx um, from um, mm -hmm. beyond. From beyond, yes. yes. And that is where I, I myself am with Corbin. Mm -hmm. But uh, could you say a little more about that? Where Jung stands exactly? It's kind well, of difficult to know. I feel, well, I, I really, I, but I haven't got it here. I really should quote yourself on this in, in um, um, <laughs> now, where, in, 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 in your last volume of essays on Blake, where you defend Jung very forcibly, I'm sorry I haven't given, uh, in terms of, of, because he was attacked as, as um, saying, you know, particularly from the theological Roman Catholic and Protestant point of view, that he psychologizes simply the image of God, mm -hmm. the God image. And um, you quote him as saying somewhere, but I can't remember the exact Jung quote now, that uh, there's a Greek term involved in this, that obviously the term image implies that the image is made, and the fact that the image is made implies that there is an image 
maker or rather an imprinter of the image. Mm -hmm. And Jung there uh, states quite specifically that the, uh, that the God image for him is not simply uh, something psychological uh, in the psyche. It is that, but it also comes from outside. I wish I brought you a passage. <laughs> I wish I brought you a passage, Kathleen, to quote back at you. Um, there is an imprinter of the image. Well, that, of course, is the very substance of Kornbauer's yeah. work. Well, certainly, mm -hmm. uh, um, um, in the passage, that in, in fact, I, I was only going through it a couple of days ago yet again. I've got it heavily underlined in my copy. And, and, and um, definitely... Uh, um, um, you are defending Jung there, and on the evidence of what you bring f forth, uh, I say, I can't quote it off the top of my head, Jung is, I think Jung is, is replying, actually, to one of his um, Catholic or Protestant theologian colleagues who attack him on this. Mm -hmm. And he, I think he makes a very good case. Of course, Kornbauer is deriving from the Ismaili tradition. That's right, that's right. Which Jung doesn't seem to have any uh, context. No, he doesn't, he, he doesn't seem to know a lot about that. 